Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. This is episode 22, The Dim Ages, part two. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to an episode on the Hallstatt Monarchs. And here's a sample of what they're learning. As you know, the earliest evidence we have for Celtic culture comes from the Hallstatt region. Eventually, they would explode from that area in all directions, but it all started there. At least, that's as far back as we've been able to trace it. So let's talk about the Celtic monarchs in that area. By the time we start to find a record of Celts, they were already being ruled over by monarchs. These monarchs had forts, were buried in enormous wooden tombs, and were wealthy enough to have a variety of goods, including their chariots, buried with them. They were living pretty well. Or at least they were dying pretty well. The poor, on the other hand, seemed to have been cremated and buried in urns. Now these were Bronze Age kings and queens, and they really were doing okay. Not great, but okay. The culture seems to have had a caste system, with peasants serving beneath warriors, warriors serving beneath the intelligentsia, the intelligentsia being beneath the monarchs, and finally the monarchs serving beneath other higher monarchs. If you'd like to hear more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Ruth, Bree, and Bridget for contributing already. Now, before we were rudely interrupted by the ending of the last episode, we had just seen the rise of the Gallic Empire, and Britannia, who had largely been uninvolved in, well, everything, had just joined up. That means that most of the West was now no longer Roman. It was Gallic. So Emperor Gallienus of Rome was in a tough spot because he had dramatic invasions, rebellions all over Rome, and a variety of other usurpers to deal with. And now he lost a massive chunk of his empire to this German turncloak. Something would have to be done. On the other hand, Postumus restricted his claims to just the Gallic Empire, so he wasn't as big of a threat as many other issues out there. But he killed Gallienus's son, and he seemed to be gobbling up more and more territory. He'd taken pretty much the entire west. So what to do, what to do? Well, to begin with, nothing. Four years of nothing, in fact. When you're constantly at risk of losing the entire empire, you can't spare the time to go curb stomp some scruffy Gallic usurper who's promised to stay in his corner of the world. You have bigger fish to fry. So in the meantime, what's happening in Britannia? Well, if you're living inland, relatively little. But if you're living along the coast, or you're a sailor, things are actually changing. See, we've got a sudden increase in sea raiders. Now generally when we think of sea raiders, we think of Vikings. But those wouldn't come along for hundreds of years, and filling the gap until that time were the Saxons and the Irish. And others will join later, but right now we've got the Saxons and the Irish. And I suppose we should take this opportunity to talk about climate change, since it relates to much of what we're going to be talking about. You heard that right, and trust me, it really does actually have an impact on this. So this period in history was actually quite a bit warmer than it is today. 
The Romano-British were planting vineyards in York, Kent was downright balmy, and with shifts in temperatures also come shifts in overall climate. Gulf streams move, some areas become drier, other areas become more wet, etc., etc. So what does that have to do with anything, you ask? I mean, we're listening about emperors and stuff, and now you're talking about Gulf streams. Well, actually, it does have quite a lot to do with what was going on in Britannia. I mean, for one, it wouldn't have been quite so uncomfortable to wear a toga. Uh, I mean, right now, you want to walk around in Britain wearing a toga. But more importantly, certain areas of the world became less habitable as a result of this transition in climate. It's theorized that one of those areas was the homeland of the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes. But even if it was just a nearby region that became uninhabitable, it would still cause a cascade of effects. Displaced tribes would move into areas occupied by weaker tribes, who would then move on if they weren't already killed. And as the problem persisted, you'd have entire groups of people gaze hungrily upon the fertile lands of Italy, Gaul, and Britannia. So basically, there's a good chance that rising temperatures led to displaced people, which led to barbarian raids. The point is, we start to have barbarian sea raiders and pirates. Now, and unless you want to live in a Mad Max future, you should consider biking to work. Oh, and also, it doesn't look like Ireland was suffering from the same problems of rising sea levels and whatnot, but they weren't going to miss out on a party, and so they wouldn't stay out of the conflict for long. They just, you know, were just going to join him for the hell of it. So as a result of all this, Britannia was transforming. Major towns that had not yet gained fortifications were now becoming fortified. London built a massive wall. Forts were built along the Norfolk coast as well as to the south, for example, in Reculver and Brancaster. So what we're seeing is that the south militarized as seaborne piracy became a problem. The region would eventually become known as the Saxon Shore, actually. But it wasn't just an east coast issue. The west coast was also fortified as they were not immune from pirates and raiders either. Thanks, Ireland. So four years passed during which the Emperor Postumus tried to deal with this massive increase in pirates and sea raiders that troubled his fledgling Gallic Empire. And actually, he was responsible for the building of those shore forts that I mentioned earlier. And he was also building shore forts along the Gallic coastlines as well. And those shore forts, by the way seem much too large for their garrisons, so there's a good possibility that they're used as basically a home base from which they could launch attacks against pirates and sea raiders, rather than strong points for defense. So in addition to having a burst in fort construction, there were probably also a lot of sea battles. So all in all, the Gallic Empire was a pretty exciting place to be for the British legions. And then, in approximately 265, Emperor Gallienus struck out against the Gallic Empire, attempting to kill Postumus. But he failed. And Gallienus blamed that failure on Arulus, his cavalry commander. So he decided to attack again, this time leading the troops himself. And he failed again, this time also becoming wounded. Double trouble. So Postumus was victorious, and, of course, struck coins trumpeting the fact. Good times were here again. Or were they? After all, we've been dealing with about 50 years of instability. Yep, I just breezed through 50 years of chaos, starting with Caracalla and ending here. I did that because, like I said before, most of it has to do with what was happening in Rome. 
I mean, all of it is fun and interesting, but it had very little to do with Britannia, so it didn't make the cut. But it really is worth looking into if you're interested. I mean, it even involves the Imperial Palace being divided in half because Caracalla and Gaeta hated each other so much. Which sounds a lot like a 1980s sitcom plot to me. But, whew, that's a massive tangent. So let's get back to the story. Anyway, so all of this immaturity and chaos has been going on for about 50 years. And of course, during this period, inflation went nuts. I mean, no one was keeping an eye on the mints, so the coinage was debased. Gold was very hard to find, and the so-called silver coins were mostly bronze with a light silver wash. This, by the way, was mostly thanks to the fact that every emperor had to buy the loyalty of the legions. Since there was only so much money in the region, they had to find a way to stretch it. All the while, the soldiers were becoming fantastically wealthy and powerful, so they stretched it the way anyone would stretch a metal-based currency. And all the while, soldiers were becoming fantastically wealthy and powerful, not to mention that there were fantastic opportunities to become emperor. So when I said good times were here again, they kind of were, at least for the legions. But was it a good time to be, well, just about anyone else? Not really. It wasn't even that great of a time to be posthumous, since it was his responsibility to get the empire running efficiently. And posthumous did his best trying to counteract the inflation by producing new coins of gold, silver, and base metals. Unfortunately, he wasn't overly successful since the silver and base metal coins just didn't catch on. The debased currency was still circulated, and consequently, inflation was still quite a problem. And then things went from bad to worse when Arolas enters the scene in 268. Remember him? He was the guy that Gallienus blamed for his first defeat by Posthumus. Well, things didn't go well for him after that. He was demoted and treated rather badly, and so he took the stance of, Demote me? You're demoting me? Fine. I'll demote you. So, as you might have guessed, now he was a would-be usurper and had allied with the Gallic Empire. What a change a few years can make. So, Arolus wanted Posthumus to march on Italy. Posthumus' soldiers wanted him to march on Italy. But remember, he didn't want to be an emperor of Rome. He was fine with his Gallic Empire. And he was dealing with pirates, sea raiders, runaway inflation, and all manner of other issues. Attacking Rome to put Aurelius on the throne would be a distraction, and immensely costly. So he refused. And by the end of the year, Gallienus would be assassinated, and Aurelius would be defeated. But Posthumus's refusal to march infuriated the legions, since it would have been an excellent opportunity to increase their wealth and power. So the following year, they declared the governor of Germania Superior, one of Posthumus's top men actually, as emperor of the Gallic Empire. Now, while Posthumus wasn't willing to march on Rome, he was willing to march on his own lands, and he quickly recaptured the rebel territory and killed the usurper. His troops moved in to sack the rebel territory. Posthumus, knowing that this was all part of his empire and having his own troops sack their own cities would hardly lead to any sort of Gallic union, wouldn't allow it. This didn't please the men at all. 
So they did what they did with any leader they didn't approve of. They wrote him stern letters and complained with their friends at coffee shops. Wait, no. These were legions. They really only knew one way to solve their problems. Yep, they killed Posthumus. And let's look and see what was going on in Britannia around this time. Yep, not much. So Posthumus was dead, and the Gallic Empire then fell to Marcus Aurelius Marius. And he had an incredibly short reign. Some sources say it was only two days, but it was probably a few months. But regardless, he also met with a bloody end. And the legions of Hispania took one look at this and said, Adios, and returned to the Roman Empire. But Britannia, Gaul, and Germania decided to stick it out. Probably because when all is said and done, the Gallic Empire was still less regicidal and unstable than the Roman Empire. And so now it was Victorinus' turn. It was only fair that he became emperor of the Gallic Empire. After all, he was the guy who arranged for the killing of the last emperor. But now the Gallic Empire was substantially smaller, having lost Hispania. And Emperor Claudius II of Rome, yep, there's a new emperor in Rome, was busy luring towns away and bringing them back within the folds of Rome. Victorinus didn't appreciate this at all, and spent much of his two years in power doing two things, fighting insurrections and being a creep. You see, he fancied the wife of one of his officers, so he seduced her. That officer was less than pleased with this turn of events, and being a legionary, it wasn't like he was terrified of the concept of killing an emperor, so he murdered Victorinus. Two years, three dead emperors. Uh-oh. This Gallic Empire is starting to look like the Roman Empire. But the Brits opted to take the stiff upper lip approach and toughed it out. So now we've got Victoria, Victorinus' mother, running things. The fact the legions let her run things wasn't out of any personal loyalty to Victorinus, of course. Victoria was wealthy, and she made the best investment you can make at the time. She bought the legions. However, Victoria didn't intend to reign long. She just wanted to hold the seat long enough to pick the next emperor, which she managed to do so, Tetricus. Having selected him, she stepped down. So now we've got four emperors and one empress in two years. When Posthumus set up his Gallic Empire to look like the Roman Empire, I don't think that this was what he had in mind. And now the Gallic Empire was just Britannia and parts of Gaul. What happened to Germania? Well, they rebelled. And Emperor Tetricus was now having to fight them off. Chaos racked the empire for several years until Emperor Aurelian of Rome, hey, a new emperor of Rome, invaded and defeated Tetricus. The Gallic Empire was dismantled, and the provinces were reunified with the Roman Empire. And through all of this, things in Britannia pretty much continued without much of a change, other than a sudden flight of capital to the island. You see, archaeological digs show that there were a large number of villas in Gaul that were abandoned during this period. And around this same time, there just happened to be a bunch of villas being built in Britannia. So it seems pretty obvious to me that the wealth of Gaul sought refuge in Britannia. Which was a smart move, since it was nice and placid over there, what with primarily just sheep, farmers, and no serious fighting. So for the most part, things went on as they always had done. 
other than the fact that the Sea Raiders and pirates saw the sudden disruption as an excellent opportunity to take up their favorite pastime, and they must have done it in a spectacular fashion since many of the shore forts that are still preserved were built around this period or shortly after it. But as for massive battles, jilted lovers, assassinations, rich moms, invasions, turn cloaks, that sort of thing, Britannia was largely left alone. But that's not to say that Britannia was less rebellious than its counterparts. It merely was insulated from the serious political drama due to distance. But trust me, Britannia was still ripe for revolt, and as luck would have it, this was an age of usurpation where common soldiers could become restorers of the true empire, or could at least become tyrants who claim they're restorers of the true empire. All right, so that's about it. We're going to pick up the story next time with, shocking, more chaos in the empire, and I think that next time we're probably going to have less farm animals and more British emperors, so that'll be fun. I forgot to mention at the start of the podcast, um, if you have any questions or anything that you'd like me to answer, now's a great time to send them to me because we're fast approaching the 25th episode and I'm going to answer listener questions on that 25th episode. They don't have to be related to history if you don't want. You can ask how I put the podcast together. Uh, you can ask what my favorite historical movie is. Or you can ask what I really think of King John. And actually, I have a kind of controversial point of view when it comes to King John. Anyways, uh, you can go ahead and email me your questions, and then I'll try and answer as many of them as I can for the 25th episode, which should be fun. And in the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns that you would like me to address directly, you can email me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can head over to facebook.com slash britishhistory and join the conversation that's going on over there. Or, as always, you can head over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, which is our site, and uh, you can go and leave your comments there as well. All right, well, I think that's about it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>